Uh, this week has uh, brought its challenges, we all know, and um, as we gather here, saints, I hope and pray that um, the Spirit of God could speak through His Word to give us a step up as we seek to welcome another week. Um, chairs of the God man, we want to spend some time in John 11 and Luke 19 to look at two short, brief narratives, uh, which I think um, we've, we've all heard of and known since we were kids in Bible study. What's the shortest verse of the Bible? John 11:35. Jesus wept. But I want us to take some time this morning to examine the significance of, of those tears. Uh, there is history behind tears. They come as a consequence of, of experience. Experience is composed of things that you know, we either hear, things that we have seen, or, or things that we feel. And so tears are never born out of a vacuum. They are born from moments of life that are characterized by either joy or, or pain. And so this morning, as we begin in John 11, we understand that Christ is in the context of death and loss and confusion. And he steps into that context with a family, uh, Mary and Martha and um, particularly Lazarus, who is the individual in question. And there are some things that we read from verse 1 on to verse 34 that really doesn't make sense whenever we look at them in light of John 11 and verse 35. Jesus wept. We understand that Jesus would say to his disciples that this sickness would not end in death. He also says about Lazarus that he loves him and that he loves his sisters. And if you love someone, you would want to seek the highest good for them and to bless them in any way you could with resources or just being there for them. But yet still he delays knowing that Lazarus is sick. He delays to, to go to him, to be there, maybe to do a miracle. I don't know. And then he says, Lazarus is sleeping. When the disciples think, well, you know, it's about four days and he should be dead by now. He has been sick for a while. But Jesus says, Lazarus is sleeping and we're going to wake him up. And on top of that, he tells Martha when they get on the scene that, oh yeah, no worries. No worries, mate. Lazarus will rise again. And to finish it off, he says about himself, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And so with all this going on, it paints a picture of a Jesus who is all-powerful, a Jesus who is all-knowing. Yeah, I know what's going on with Lazarus. It's not a big deal. He's only sleeping. We're going to wake him up. I love you. All those things point to the fact that he's supreme, you know, he's powerful, and he could fix it. But then we get to John 11 and verse 35, and it says, Jesus wept. Now my question would be, why would you weep? Why would you cry? And this is not just a, a little crocodile tear or a, a sigh. This is from the depth of emotion. This is crying for someone that 
was and now is not in your physical presence. So does that make sense to you? Knowing what he knows and having said what he said to now subject himself to weeping. That's the first bookend. Second bookend comes in Luke, the 19th chapter. As we understand, Jesus is making his way back to Jerusalem. And as he makes his way back, he stops on the hillside and he surveys that great city, the epicenter of the world, the, the known world in those times. And the Bible tells us, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so, as he cries, he's referencing the destruction of Jerusalem circa A.D. 70, Second Temple period, when Vespasian would begin an onslaught to besiege the city, and his son Titus would be the one to complete it. 80,000 Roman soldiers would descend upon Jerusalem. It took them four years to besiege the city, and at the tail end of it was the Passover. People from every tongue and tribe of the known world are filtering into Jerusalem for the Passover. Huge feast. Almost like the Super Bowl has come to town. And you have folks from St. Louis, from Nevada, from Louisiana coming into town and they're staying at hotels and they're buying foodstuffs and everything. Everyone is allowed to go in. But then when the besiegement happens, no one is allowed to go out. So you can guess what happens. A city that has enough resources and accommodation for their populace is now overburdened with people to the point that resources are going down fast. And with nothing coming out and nothing leaving, the city's resources are depleted. Starvation ensues. Mothers begin to eat their young. Every tree within a 10-mile radius is hewn down to assist and facilitate that battle and also to crucify folks. And so Jesus is on that hillside. And as he looks at the city teeming with life, he knows what is going to happen. He is in the presence of death and chaos on the way. And he views the hustle and bustle of life. People are buying, people are selling, people are trading, kids are playing games. And he stops and takes a moment for himself and he cries for the city. Just like he allowed the episode with Lazarus to play out, he would allow this scene to play out 40 years plus after his departure. At this juncture, even before we get to the tears, you have to ask yourself, well, 
why does God or why did God allow the possibility of evil and suffering? Because there is much suffering in these two narratives that he cries within. There is much pain. So, so why? If you're all powerful God, and if you're almighty, naturally the first question we want to deal with regarding this narrative is, why does he allow this suffering? Before we get to the tears, I'm going to deal with that just a bit. God has always allowed believers to ask hard questions. If you remember Job, Job asked for about 34 plus chapters. What's happening? Did I not serve you? Did I, did I not pray and do my vows? Was that an, an, example, an example to my family? Why now has, have I lost my cattle, uh, my house, my kids? And yes, emotionally my wife. Why are these things happening? And Job is allowed to speak in this monologue tone for about 34 chapters until God answers. And the psalmist is just the same way. You see, God does not get upset when we wave our fists at heaven and ask why. But he also intends that after we ask why and we cry and we yell, that we listen. God is not into the business of editing the story. God through Christ is in the context of suffering and death. And he is not seeking to change or edit the story because that would take away from his credibility and his truthfulness. And so in the beginning, he created everything to do and to be in their existence. Every tree and every mountain and every rock and every valley and yes, humans too, to choose what they would do. He gave us minds to think, to be rational beings, to be intelligent. And he does not step in and change the story every single time, editing as a callous or lucifer writer. You see, God allows us for freedom. And it's because of that freedom that both evil and good are possible. Healing and miracles in the Bible, in your Bible, were done to prove the historical Jesus. Not to save everyone from every difficult moment that comes in a fallen and depraved world. And so, God breaking into the existence of the world gave us prophets and gave us those miracles to prove that Christ was the God-man and that the time of reconciliation, the scheme of redemption was on the cusp of reality. Not so that everyone could have their dead raised and the infirmities taken away. And even today we see God does not do healing or, or, or bring about healing for everyone. And so sometimes some people you know, get over some disease or sickness and others don't. Some people actually die because of their infirmities and we ask why. Is it some sort of a favoritism? Well, no, it's not. God is still concerned about families and individuals. And he's still concerned about proof. And so, historically, he uses his miracles to prove his existence. To give you an idea and a proposal for your faith, for your heart. And you get to choose whether you give it or not. So Thomas says, Lord, I need some help. And he says, come, come, come. Put your hand by my side. 
and feel the wound. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Lord, take this thing away, the thorn of the flesh. Three times. Take it away, take it away, take it away. And the Lord says three times, no, no, no. For my grace is sufficient for you. Because in your weakness, my strength can be seen and will be shown. And so the agenda of miracles was always for proof and never to placate us. And I think we've gotten so far from reading our Bibles, the way, it is, the, way the story unravels and the way God proves himself that you know, we interject every single thing that we want except what God has said. So we have the Bible, but we don't really read the Bible. Corrie Ten Boom says, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. You see, in the first century, the church grew irregardless of persecution, evil and suffering generated by the hands of wicked men. They knew God made intelligence and not artificial intelligence, meaning he gave us the responsibility to think for ourselves and to respond. Without his intervention, with his intervention, there is no free will, and there is no choice, and there is no life. There is only slavery and a life lived on the command and prompt of a universal puppet master. Nowadays, modern people have filled their lives with devotions. Devotions to husbands, devotions to wives and lovers and kids and accomplishments and goals and ventures and dreams and comforts in life. To the point that when these devotions are interrupted, we turn to God and ask why. Why don't you save us from ourselves, in spite of ourselves, not believing that you alone are God? Why don't you save us from ourselves after we have given everything place, first place, and you second and third? It is a legitimate question, and God has legitimate answers. And so he walks that path with us, with his stairs. As we get back to the narrative, we have to deal with this idea that Jesus cries. Jesus fully lodged and committed to be present in both of these narratives, concerned with an individual, Lazarus, and also with the multitudes, the people of Jerusalem, finds himself crying. He actively joins in walking into, through, and out of our pain and sorrows. Now, the question is, what kind of God chooses, what kind of God chooses to suffer with mere mortals, feeble and frail and powerless as myself? What sort of a God does that? I invite you to a challenge. Survey all the religions of this earth. And seek to come up with one example of a divine being who sacrificed his life for his people. You see, there are no other gods who joins their subjects in suffering. Ancient Eastern religions will teach you how to maintain and strive to unlock the power within, to do it for yourself. And others will present their greatness and their desire for your affection, your worship, and your sacrifice. Even radical Islam will let you know that you are an infidel 
if you don't do it the way Muhammad prescribed, and they will actively inflict pain and suffering in the name of their God, and by extension, religion. But no other God, except Jehovah God, ever dare to be so close, so close, even sharing in our pain, not as an observer, but as a fully-fledged participant. And there is a difference in observing and participating. So the mighty Zeus rules over us. He does not dare to reside with us. Even in the context of Jesus' day, where Greek mythology was a thing, gods did not put men before themselves, except to steal their women. They were not so presumptuous and eager to trade down for human existence and limitations. God and man were of different essence, essentially, and priority. So, I get goosebumps when I read that God in the flesh cries like a man. And this picture is not uncommon to us. I think everyone in here in this auditorium, under the sound of my voice, would agree that there are days when you feel like that. There are things that you've gone through that have made you feel like that, or exist, or live like that, alone. But we see Jehovah God coming in the flesh. The God-man made a little lower than the angels, meaning made in the same substance as we are made. A high priest, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And whenever we see that word temptation, we usually feel... It's, you know, some surface temptation, you know. I wanted bread, I wanted water. Tempted in all points, like as we are. I don't know what you struggle with. Everyone struggles with something. I don't know what your struggle is. But the book says, Christ, God in the flesh, was tempted in all points, just like you and me. One who slept, one who cried, one who even died but was raised. And he is present, participating. When people hurt, and when marriages get difficult, when lovers fail and relationships get frustrating, when the money runs out and the commitments are still stacking up, when friends betray, when people are mean and unkind, when the phone rings and the doctor says, we need to have a conversation. Because your health is not the same. When you're misunderstood, when you're called names, when your body just won't work right like it used to, When injustice greets you or your neighbor, when a teen is killed, when a loved one takes their life or passes away, he hears everything, he feels everything, and he cannot turn it off like we do when you move on to the next thing. Every prayer, every cry, every injustice, he sees it and he feels it. I would not want to be God, nor near those types of things every single day. At least, thank God, I get to sleep. And in the morning, I will deal with whatever is there waiting for me. But he never sleeps. And he does not have to do that. He chooses to come to us in our pain. 
He chooses to come to us in our disillusions. He chooses to come to us when we just can't make sense out of life. I don't know where you are this morning, but I bet you there are some things in your past, present, or coming that won't make sense. That won't feel so right. That won't even allow you to get up in the morning. That will bring tears in the night and in the daytimes when you're riding on the bus or while you're in traffic. They just flow. So those two bookends, Jesus wept, knowing that he would raise Lazarus. (laughs) Knowing that he would change the story at the end. Knowing that as a faithful God, he allows us to be free and to choose. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Revelation 21 and verse 4. So Jesus cried. He said, I cannot be a liar. I cannot go back on my word. You are free to choose. But here's what I could do for you. Here's what I could do for you. I can show you how the story ends. There are people living on this earth without faith, without God, and without hope. So when something is interrupted in their life, everything is gone. Because their life is wrapped up in everything here. But he says to Christians, you know how this ends. No matter how many times you forget, or you are flustered by life, you know how this ends. I can show you how the story ends. I can keep you together emotionally and spiritually. Some of you in here are my heroes. All of you guys are my heroes. But I know some personal stories. And I'm asking myself, how do they go on living? (laughs) Well, he keeps you together emotionally and spiritually. He allows you to minister to people like myself. People who don't know too much, who will be tested by life. And they need people to look up to to say, hey, you know what? If you could do it, I could do it too. Because we follow the same Lord. I can sit with you, feel with you, cry with you, so you know that I'm always there. And even when everyone does their allegiances and they go to engage the next phase of their life, I will always remain here. The shortest verse of the Bible Jesus wept. Luke 19, he weeps again. I thank God for those tears. I thank God for those tears. Because they tell me that my Lord has come to me. My Lord walks with me. And not only observes me, but he participates in life, in life with me. And he does the same for you. Wherever you are this morning, Emotionally or spiritually, we have an answer. We have not made up that answer. The world attests to the answer. The historical Jesus actually lived. And if he lived, that means that he's either a liar, a lunatic, or your Lord. If he's a liar, everything he says was not true.
If he's a lunatic, then he went about talking about resurrection and all those things that no one has ever seen or done. But history, not religion, <laughs> history tells you that he did exist, that he was risen the third day. The Romans crucified him. They can tell you that. And if he's risen, so will you. When a husband leaves or a wife dies, if he's risen, so will you. When pain comes, if he's risen, so will you. When you're confused, if he's risen, so will you. When life hits you in the gut. I think I'm talking to real people this morning. I think whenever we come to church, we put on our best face. But this is a place where we can be transparent. Because we're all here, broken down on our last leg, trying to get some fuel from our Lord to get to the next week. The chairs of the God-man are here for you. Whatever your need is, um, you have in your prayers open. We have our elders and our leaders here who will assist you with your request as we stand, as we sing our song of invite.